Well, hello everyone. It's great to be together. If you've uh, never met me, my name is Garth. I'm one of our leaders in our Ronnebosch congregation. I have an amazing wife named Sam and a little beautiful daughter named Katie. They're the special ladies in my life. So I'll be celebrating them as we celebrate Women's Day tomorrow. And a big shout out to all the ladies. Uh, we celebrate you as we observe Women's Day tomorrow. And uh, we're in week two of our Becoming Emotionally Mature series. And uh, throughout this series, we're hopefully going to see what it means for us to lead our emotions towards God and be shaped by His truth and not necessarily our own. And uh, there's this reality for us as Christ followers that if we think that we're growing more spiritually mature, but not growing in Christ-like emotional maturity, man, we're probably uh, fooling ourselves. And uh, Luke mentioned this last week when he kicked off our series by telling us and if we want to grow in emotional maturity, we need to look beneath the surface of our lives, that we need to audit ourselves soberly. We need to invite Christ to transform anything that might be hindering our relationship with Him and with others. And so today, what we're going to be speaking about is breaking free from the past, breaking free from the past. And, and what do I mean by past? Well, believe it or not, we're not just a product of our own habits, our own thoughts, our own actions, but we've been shaped and molded into the people we are by those people that are closest to us, especially our parents. And, and some of the shaping and, and molding, it's been blessing, it's been good things, but we also need to recognize that there's sinful patterns in our family that can be handed down to, uh, to us, that can stunt our, our spiritual maturity, our emotional maturity. And often we can see a sin of one generation affecting or being passed on to the next generation. Maybe as I'm saying this, you're already thinking of some examples in your own family that might be running through your mind. And uh, what I want to do is just start off with a, a snapshot in the Bible of three generations, Abraham, uh, Abraham Isaac, and Jacob, and, and starting in Genesis 12. And what we see is firstly, God calls this, this man named Abraham and tells him he's got to leave th this place, this world that he knew, and he's got to follow God to this new land, this new uh, future for his family. And so amazingly, he, he leaves it all behind and it's important to know God didn't choose Abraham because he was a great guy. No, he, he chose him because God is gracious. The same reason God chose us. And uh, because Abraham's just like us, he comes with a lot of baggage. And uh, he would need to take his family and head off to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. And what we're going to see is how he picks up some deceptive practices. And so reading from Genesis 12, verse 11, it says, as, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, who would later become Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is my wife. And then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you are my sister so that I'll be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. From verse 14, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. She was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake. And Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. And we see here that Abraham's deception would put his wife, Sarai, into moral jeopardy. 
And what's worse is a few years later, we had seen Genesis 20, and this is where their names were changed to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham does exactly the same thing, but with King Abimelech. And uh, they would travel to this place called Gerar, where King Abimelech was king. And uh, he would also be scared of this king. And again, he would call Sarah his sister to protect his own skin. And, but in both occasions, we see God would intervene to protect Sarah. And, he, uh, and Sarah and, and Abraham would be asked to, to leave the city. But, but what we'd see here is this, this ongoing habitual sin of deception. And, and then we hit Genesis 26 and, and we see Abraham's son, Isaac, who's married to Rebekah. And uh, now we're into the second generation and there'll be another famine in the land and Isaac has to go to the same king, King Abimelech. And the Lord says to Isaac, go there, stay there. I'll bless you like I did your father. And so he does that. But let's see what happens when he gets there. Genesis 26 from verse six, it says, so Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, yep, you can guess it. He said, what? She's my sister. Because he was afraid to say she is my my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. Exact same king, exact same place. And it's profound to see that the sin of the father lives on and is perpetuated in his son's life. It's like father, like son. And we see the sin of deception happen in Isaac's children too. The same sin in different ways. Some of you will know this story. You would have, uh, might have read it before. But years later, Isaac's wanting to bless his son Esau and his other son Jacob, knowing that Esau's sight is, is failing, uh, dresses up as Esau. He'd put a will on his arms to make them more hairier uh, to, and to fool his father for this blessing. And we head into Genesis 27 from verse 21 and it says, Isaac said to Jacob, come near to me so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. And Jacob went close to his father, Isaac, who touched him and said, this voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am replied. And here it is, Isaac's son lying to his own dad in order to benefit himself. And in the, the rest of the story, I actually see Jacob goes on to become this, this con man lying uh, repeatedly. And uh, we see patterns of deceptions and, uh, deception and selfishness amongst other things just passed on from generation to generation. And we see it affecting one generation to the next. And so what I want to point us to is uh, this final scripture in Exodus, Exodus 20. And here in the middle of the, the Ten Commandments, we read this verse four. It says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or above earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third, fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
And so what's going on here? Don't, don't stress, don't stress. What God's not saying here is that the great-great-grandchildren uh, will be punished for the great-great-grandparents, and that's not what he's saying. But there's a couple of things that he is saying here. And first he's saying that the pattern of generational sin is a reality. The, the, the pattern of generational sin is a reality. God is describing what we just witnessed uh, when we look through these scriptures together. Sin is in some way like genetics that are passed down from parent to children. And it often can be a specific kind of sin that's, that's passed down. And um, I, I don't, I'm not too sure in how it might work when it comes to nature and nurture and genetics, but there's definitely this bend towards sin in our lives that might originate with our parents or our grandparents or our, our family of origin. Then also sin has consequences that last generations. And I think this we know intuitively. Most of us have experienced this. How many of us have been affected by things uh, in our family where it comes to infidelity, betrayal, uh, abandonment, abuse, violence, self-worship, messy divorces. And maybe uh, even these were in part caused by our grandparents in our, in our parents' life. You see, sin has a ripple effect that impacts our generational families. But we also see, we also see that on a scale of God's mercy and judgment, God's mercy wins every time. Sin's power to influence is, is only described to sort of the third, fourth generation. But the love and mercy of God is described to the thousandth generation. We see God's heart is to show mercy and love. God isn't punishing you for your parents' sin. That's not the idea. The idea is rather that your, your grandparents' sin or your great-grandparents' sin might be playing out in your life. But it's important to note, it's your sin. It's your sin that, is that you're responsible for before God. But that's why God's mercy is such good news. And, and the bottom line is this, is that our family of origin has a massive bearing on who we are today. And, and also events from our past growing up can affect us. Maybe you grew up in poverty. Maybe you grew up with lots of money. Maybe you were a third child, a first child, an only child. All these things shape us in this way. They're both the, the bad things and, all, and the good things and all those things that have happened to us. And so our family and our, these events can shape who we become. And uh, we all carry the bad and the good into our present, possibly even into our future. And like we see from the story of Abraham, we see even he made many mistakes, but he, but he also did much good. We see blessing in his life through the generations. But we also see that those patterns of deception uh, make their way through the generations as well. And we're likely to have both blessing and sin from our past that shapes our present. And, and it's obvious that one of, one of the closest relationships, the most influential, uh, influential relationships is um, our parents. It's our parents. And um, these relationships, whether our biological parents or whether it's people that might have filled that role, maybe it's the absence of parents, but it can impact the nature of our sin. It can impact the way uh, that we can see or view God. And it can influence the way that we view God. I mean, if you grew up having to earn love, then you probably think that you've got to earn God's love too. If you grew up with uh, parents that were angry all the time, uh, you could struggle to see God as a compassionate father. If you grew up being told that 
You were kind of king of the castle. You could get whatever you wanted. There was never, uh, you were never told no. You could grow up thinking that God is a genie that will just fulfill all of your desires. And if you experienced parents that maybe abandoned you, were embarrassed by you, felt burdened by you, maybe used you, hurt you, maybe pressurized you or communicated in some way that you didn't matter, that can also affect the way and how God would think about you, how you perceive God thinks about you. And if we think of original sin, I mean, if we go back many generations, right to the world's first parents of Adam and Eve, where things got messed up terribly. Let me tell you, since Genesis 3, where where that happened, I don't think there have been perfect parents on the face of this earth. And I've been a parent for almost a year now, and I can tell you how imperfect I've been in just a year. And so one thing I think it's good for us to clarify, it's good for us to know as parents, is that not all the sins of our children are because of bad parenting or because of mistakes. As, as parents, we're not called to perfect parents, uh, parenting. We're called to trust and follow God in our parenting. And that means trusting His mercy. It means trusting His grace. It means helping uh, shape us, guide us in how we raise our children in the way of the Lord, imperfectly, humbly, and as obediently as possible. And, And no matter how many times we messed up, the grace of God allows us to come back to God, to seek His correction, to seek His restoration in our parent child relationships. We can trust Him, we can trust Him with our parents, and we can trust Him with our child's lives. And so I thought I would share a little bit of, uh, of my story of how generational sin has played out in my life. And one of the ways it's played out in my family is through addiction and, and substance abuse. And uh, my dad and I were actually talking the other day and we were just saying, man, there's not a lot of people in our family that haven't struggled with addiction or substance abuse. It's, it's clearly a generational sin that's made its way through our family. And uh, my dad has struggled with addiction. He struggled with alcoholism. He, he is a Christian. He even used to be a pastor back in the day. And man, this addiction has got hold of his life or got hold of his life. And he has done time in rehab, in AA meetings, and he's had to deal with his past. He's had to face his past and he's had to do business with God when it comes to the sin in his life. And um, I can tell you as a son, it was tough to try and navigate this while we were growing up. But what I'd find is I too would come to struggle with this. And throughout my high school and varsity life, it consisted of a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs. And when I got to the age of 23, I found my entire life would fall out from beneath me. And uh, my excessive drinking, my drug habits would just, they had had their way with me. And my girlfriend at the time would leave me because of the person I had become. I was unfaithful to her. Um, My drinking was through the roof. It became excessive. I was using lots of cocaine. And there was a point where my parents didn't even recognize their son anymore. There was a place where my parents couldn't even recognize the son that they had raised. And my my dad, knowing how to identify what was going on in my life, he he called me one day saying, won't you come over? Let's have a chat. And uh, my dad said to me, he said, Boyki, he always calls me Boyki. He said, Boyki, let me tell you what I think you have. It it runs in our family, this addiction, this disease. And I think, you know what? I think it's going to ruin your life if you don't acknowledge it. And I tell you what, 
I was so depressed at the time. I was so down. I mean, I wanted to end it all. And uh, my dad would just say to me, he said, let's look beneath the surface. He'd say, tell me what's making you so depressed. And in that moment, in a moment of a little bit of honesty, I would just lay it all out, everything that was happening. The booze, the parting, the sex, the cocaine, the broken relationships, the dishonesty. I just laid it all out. And I was expecting my dad to be so uh, disappointed, so heartbroken. And, and, and he would look at me and he'd say these words. He'd say, is that all? Is that all that's making you depressed? And what my dad wasn't doing was diminishing sin. He wasn't doing that. He knew firsthand how destructive sin can be. He knows how seriously we need to take it. But what he knew more was the transforming power of Jesus Christ to redeem, reshape the brokenness that I was experiencing, the power of Jesus Christ to take the old and make it new again. You see, my dad knew that there's no brokenness, no sinfulness, no messiness that the gospel of grace can't bring you back from. As our scripture says, a couple of generations affected by sin, but the mercy of God sustains a thousand generations. And my dad, he would, he would give me a Bible and he'd say, all the answers that you are looking for are in here. The freedom that you are thirsting for, the freedom that you feel like you'll never attain can be found in here. His name is Jesus. And he doesn't just come to give you a life that's just without drinking or without drinks, but he comes to give you a whole new identity. And, and in that moment, there would be this picture of the father that would have this virus of addiction that would be passed down, would also be able to give his son the vaccine, which is the cure to it, which is Jesus. And that night I put my, my faith in Jesus. I'd ask him to transform my life. I wanted to, to follow him no matter the cost. The next day with my new identity in Christ intact, my dad and I would go to our first AA meeting together and the, and the Lord would start his redemptive work in my life. And God would start transforming me to who I already was in him with my new identity. And I'm not going to lie, it was tough, it was sore, it was filled with a lot of honest, raw conversations and apologies and repentance and, and tears and facing all my stuff. But there was, this, there was this moment where I was driving out Musenberg Way and I remember it was a hot day and I just became overwhelmed with peace and I started crying. It was about seven months after this. And I'd experienced this peace, and I realized that the reason I was crying because it was the first time I'd ex truly experienced real, real peace. And all the deep surgery that God had done was starting to show its healing effects and its redemptive fruit in my life. The somewhat spiritual chemotherapy was working in my life. And sometimes when we face our past, God breaks us, and when God breaks us free from our past, it can feel just like that. It can, it can feel like a spiritual chemotherapy. You can start thinking, why is the thing that's supposed to be making me feel better actually making me feel terrible right now? But sometimes obedient to God is owning and facing our stuff. And it can be so, it can be like antiseptic to a wound. But it creates this true freedom. It creates true redemption that our souls need. 
You see, we have to believe that when, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for it all. He paid for it all, all our sins, not just the little ones, not the obvious ones, all of them, the ugliest, baddest, meanest sins, especially those that have been in our families for years. And in turn, he gives us a new identity. He offers us a road to redemption. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, our, our family sinful patterns, the shackles of the past don't need to define or steal away from the future we can have with him and in him. And maybe you, you're watching for the first time or you haven't really considered Jesus as a savior or redeemer, or maybe you haven't considered Jesus at all, but you, you know that your family history is just, man, it's, it, it's hurtful, it's complicated, it's messy. Your life might seem messy, complicated, or maybe you have this feeling, maybe you just feel stuck. You feel stuck. Can I be the first to offer you the spiritual vaccine that quenches our longing for freedom that you might be thirsting for? That the answer we might be looking for could be found in this book. And that the life of freedom that we've been searching for has already been paid for on the cross. And that all we need to do is humbly accept it. His name is Jesus. He's made a way. He's our Redeemer. And for those of us that have relationship with Jesus, maybe over the years you've fought the same about family generational sin and some of the things that you've been dealing with in your life. And some of these things you might have felt like you've been dealing with for years. But I just want to give us some suggestions uh, on how to bring these things before God and how we can trust His transforming power. And, and here's just three helpful suggestions or steps with dealing with generational sin in our lives. First, I'd say we need to identify it. We need to identify it. Who are the people or the events that have shaped my life? We need to look back and we need to say, well, in what ways have these people or events shaped me? How has this played out in my life? We also need to take these things to God. We need to ask him to identify these things. We need to be praying, Lord, search me, show me what it is that might be hindering my relationship with you. Uh, Peter Scazzaro in his book, he calls these unbiblical commandments that we've inherited for our family. What are some of those unbiblical commandments that we might have inherited? How do we identify them? And, and sometimes we'll, we'll have trouble identifying these things. And I think we might need to call in some, some close trusted friends, some trusted leaders to put our lives before them. Hey, maybe you'd consider doing our redemption course, Breaking Ground, that we've been advertising. We're so looking forward to, to uh, getting into that course or that course being available to us. It really digs into uh, our identity and our identity in Christ and where those two match. And so I'd encourage you to sign up for that course if you can. The other thing I'd say is, is that we need to own it. We need to own it. And this simply means we need to take responsibility for it. We need to take responsibility for it. We can sometimes look at these things and we can, and we can shift the blame to previous generation. And actually what we've got to do, man, we've got to acknowledge the sin in our own lives. We can't think that it's someone else's problem. We can't think that it's someone else's fault. We can't think it's because of different circumstances. We've got to own what is sinful in our lives. And then lastly, what we should do is take it to God and take it to our church family. Take it to God and take it to our church family. When we take it to God, we get to, we get to repent. 
to repent is to realize that we don't have what it takes to change within our own strength. We need God's grace, his truth, his transforming power. So because Jesus has dealt with our sins, there's no shame, no guilt. It's just simply us accepting Jesus' free gift of grace, this new identity that he's given us. And we get to turn from the unbiblical commandments we've inherited, but we rather get to embrace living by God's word. That's repentance. But then we also got to bring it to our church family. Often the church is referred to as a family in the Bible. And it's obvious because we've been adopted as children into God's family. And God uses our church family to, to help us relearn the ways of Jesus and what family can be like. We can get to learn from one another and experience the freedom that comes with living with brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers around God's truth. And scripture tells us that, that learning from one another is like iron sharpening iron. We need to get honest with one another, honest about our lives, honest about our stuff. We need to allow others to walk alongside us, encouraging us in faith, spurring us on, correcting us. And most importantly, praying for, for us, carrying us in prayer. We all need prayer. And some of us, we don't see our church family this way. And I know it gets hard being online or feeling uh, disconnected, but we're still family. We've got to believe that the church, God's family is a blessing from God. It's a blessing from God. To be part of his family is a means of grace towards us because we can't do this walk alone. We need each other. What we're going to do now is we're going to listen to a Tracy story, and she's going to just share a little bit about how this truth has played out in her life, and then we'll be back. Hi, I'm Tracy. People often ask me, how did you turn out so normal when they hear more about my family and my story? We even joke about it within my family. Beyond the joking though, for me, the journey of brokenness in my family has been something that I have had to acknowledge and address, process, surrender to God through prayer, and do the hard work to break free from the effects of the past so that I can live in the future that God has for me. Something I not only wanted and needed for myself, but for my husband and kids too. I've experienced firsthand how easy it can be to take the experiences and emotional baggage experienced over years and let it shape who you see yourself and others as. I don't remember my parents ever being happily married and their marriage was marked by a volatility that led to relational breakdown long before they got divorced. They were so bad at communication that as a nine-year-old, I was taking the divorce papers between them so they didn't have to speak to each other and having to hide under my sister's bed when they did speak as it was often an awful fight. My image of caretakers was tarnished by them modeling abuse of substances, depression and suicide as ways to escape reality. I quickly learned that emotions were scary because they were almost always experienced in the extreme and led to bad things. Our family also really struggled financially, which meant that we moved a lot. I went to six different schools and lived in eight different homes over my childhood, and there was never any communication about any of it. My parents both struggled with substance abuse to the point that it not only made me grow up really quickly and look out for myself, but it often felt like I was responsible for taking care of them too. My mom was hospitalized and tried rehab, and my dad even found himself homeless. These memories were so core to my childhood experience that they shaped me deeply. I became very independent, but not in the good way. After years of being let down by everyone, independence was a defense against trusting others and being vulnerable in any way. 
This worked inwardly too, as I switched off my emotions as much as possible and shoved any negative feeling as deep as I could so I wouldn't have to deal with it. Learning to soldier on as if nothing fazed me. I let no one in to see the real me, as I was sure they would see the truth of how unworthy I really was and would potentially hurt me even more. I became withdrawn and cautious, so I never said the wrong thing to upset anyone. My ultimate goal as a child was to do everything I could to become fully independent, excel at school, work, and save money to buy myself a car and pay for my studies, so I only ever needed to rely on myself. My identity became linked to what I was able to do and achieve, and then drinking with friends enabled me to like myself a little more, relax, and have a good time. I knew what I didn't want my own family and life to be like one day, but I had no idea of what I did want it to look like until God got hold of me after school. He invited me into his family and used this church community to reveal his truth to me, who I was created to be and how I fit into his family. Through reading God's word and unpacking it on Sundays and in life group, God helped me to understand what it means to be made in his image to truly believe that I am worthy and valued because I am his daughter, regardless of what my experience has taught me, and that this status is unearnable by me, but a gift from Jesus through his merciful sacrifice. I have experienced genuine love from my brothers and sisters in Christ, love that is not based on what I am able to achieve or give, but on my identity as a daughter and sister, a love that builds trust and a healthy level of dependence on one another a love that sanctifies and protects. My marriage and mothering would not be what it is today without these examples of faithful followers of Jesus. Time and time again, God has whispered to me that a certain trait I have is not who I am, but an outcome of what I have experienced. These moments are some of the most freeing, where I realize that I'm not tied to a thought pattern, emotion or characteristic, that it doesn't have to be like that, that I can be different. When I lost my mom a few years ago to suicide, I saw how different I was to how I had been. God reminded me that he is the one true source of hope and the only stable foundation worthy of building my life upon. Instead of hurling myself up and walling myself off, I felt the support and love of my spiritual family and my husband. And the experience of loss didn't derail me away from health, but I was able to grieve with all my emotions and pressed more into God my Father and the family he had put around me. I am so grateful for the many areas where God has radically transformed me by his grace, kindness, and mercy. And I'm sure there will be more areas that he will reveal to me in time to come. There are moments where I wish my upbringing had been different, better, but it is never long before I am reminded that every single moment in my past has led me to where I am today. That every difficulty has created a bigger need to depend on God that every moment of suffering or pain has made me more aware of the deep joy and peace I get to find in Him, that every time I have reached the end of my capacity to endure in my own strength, I have been shown that He will faithfully strengthen and uphold me every time, that I wasn't designed to do it on my own, and that He is my very present help. Ephesians 3 verse 20 to 21 says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.
Thank you, Tracy, for sharing your story. And what an amazing picture of God's redeeming love for us and of uh, God's uh, family, our church, our community. And uh, I'd love to pray for us as we close off our evening together. So why don't you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that um, where there's some of us that might feel stuck. There's some of us uh, that might feel that there are just cycles and patterns that we might have inherited from our family, that we might be stuck in Jesus, that we don't have to rely on our own strength. We don't have to rely on our own power. We don't have to come up with our own truth, Jesus, but that you are the way, the truth, the life, that we can trust in your transforming power in our lives, Jesus. I pray that there would be an acknowledgement of this in our hearts, and I pray, Holy Spirit, for everyone uh, that would be watching this today, that there would be something of this resonating in their heart, Lord, to accept more of your grace, Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to own and acknowledge things in our lives that might play out, that might affect our relationship with you, that might affect our relationship with other people. I pray, Jesus, that you could take us on a journey of restoration, of healing, Lord. I pray, Lord, that there is some that might feel far away from a church family or not, know of any church family that might be distant, Lord, that you might make available people that know you to come around people that might be struggling. I pray, Lord, that as we um, commit our lives to you, as we commit this journey to you, Jesus, that you would be some of your, your best handiwork in our lives, Lord. We love you and we bless you in your mighty name. Amen.